The banking sector is seeing some tumult. Why? And what does it mean for the economy as a whole? Here's what matters. Live from New York City, I'm Julia Herman, standing in for Lauren Goodwin for the next few weeks, and this is Market Matters from New York Life Investments. In this podcast, we bring you the best insights from across the New York Life Investments platform because we believe that by sharing perspectives and engaging with you, our listeners, we can all become better investors. Welcome, everybody. It's the week of March 20th, 2023. Lauren is away for the next few weeks, but as the last week has shown us, the markets stop for no one. We need to talk about the recent failures of Silicon Valley Bank, or SVB, and Signature Bank in New York. We also need to talk about increased scrutiny of Credit Suisse and First Republic. In our view, the sources of stress on these specific banks are in part due to the Federal Reserve's interest rate hiking cycle and in part due to bank-specific considerations here. I've been on the road last week, and our clients and others have questions about moral hazard and bailouts and Federal Reserve policy. So I'm so glad that in order to help me dig through all of this, Steve Friedman of Mackay Shields, a regular and popular guest of the podcast, is joining me today. And he's fighting through a cold to do so. So extra thanks to Steve uh, for coming and joining us this week. Steve is a managing director and macroeconomist at Mackay Shields, and he has about 15 years of experience at the Fed to boot. So this wealth of experience has made him the first person we thought of to compare notes with on how we're seeing the banking sector and what it means for the economy as a whole. Steve, welcome. Thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you for having me. All right. So we've had a week to digest this ongoing news flow. It was a busy weekend. So with that, let's dig in. Let's start where where this all started with Silicon Valley Bank or SVB. And I think at this point, it's pretty well understood why SVB failed, but let's make sure that we have the complete story from our view, from our vantage point. How I've been describing it to clients in a nutshell is this. SVB had huge inflows of deposits from its tech sector clients during the pandemic, and it locked up about $100 billion of this in long-duration treasuries and mortgage-backed securities before interest rates rose at the start of 2022. Then the Fed underwent its fastest hiking cycle in history, leaving SVB with an unrealized loss on that $100 billion. Then the tech sector hit a slowdown and depositors needed cash. SVB attempted to meet these needs by selling a $20 billion securities portfolio, but this spooked investors. Ultimately, there was a run on the bank and it failed. So Steve, to that nutshell story, what would you add? Can you tell us more about how the Federal Reserve's hiking cycle has potentially made it more difficult for banks to match assets with liabilities versus what was unique to the SVB situation? Those are great questions, Julia. I think that's a great summary you provided. I would perhaps add that they had an adverse exposure to rising interest rates on both the asset and liability side of their balance sheet. Uh, As you mentioned on the asset side, given losses in their securities holdings as the Fed raised rates. And then on the liability side, the slowdown in in the economy that to the tech sector in particular uh, led to basically deposit withdrawals from that sector, which put the bank under additional stress. I would probably add as well that lack of diversity in deposit base was probably a contributing factor as well. 
So in response to the SVB situation, we saw two things. We saw a regulator decision to make all depositors of the bank whole and to establish a liquidity facility for all banks. So I'd like to start with that second part of the regulatory response here, which is the establishment of a Fed liquidity facility to support banks. Steve, can you tell us more about which banks are using this facility and what that can tell us about the banking system as a whole? Maybe to back up a little bit to discuss the facility itself and its structure. Our listeners haven't heard. It's called the Bank Term Funding Program. It's actually a form of discount window lending. It's almost like disguised discount window lending, but with better terms. So banks can borrow from this facility for up to one year. There's just a very, very small penalty rate, which is basically 10 basis points above top of the Fed's policy rate range. So that's currently at 4.75%. You add 10 basis points to that. So it's not a very punitive rate that banks can borrow. I think one of the most important innovations here also is that banks can borrow the par value of any securities that they pledge so long as it meets, meets the collateral requirements. And it's essentially high quality collateral like treasury securities and, and agency mortgages. So I think the intent here is to uh, dissuade banks from selling securities at a loss to meet any deposit calls and instead to pledge those securities as collateral to the Fed and, and receive the full par value to make depositors whole. So in that sense, it should give depositors a lot of of confidence that their deposits are safe. If they need them, banks can always turn to the Fed and receive the par value of securities when you're alone to make depositors whole. So it should lead to some some confidence among the depositor base. In some ways, the FDIC guarantee of all deposits of SVB and Signature Bank should do the same because it can create this assumption that if you have your money in the bank and it runs into problems, even if your deposits are uninsured, perhaps the FDIC would eventually step in and guarantee your deposits as well. So taken together, these facilities and these actions should help depositors feel confident over time that their uninsured deposits are safe. We, of course, can't say that with 100% certainty. Many depositors will still move their deposits. In fact, that seems to be the case. We saw some fairly significant borrowing from the Fed as of last Wednesday in both this new bank funding program, but also from the regular discount window facility. We've also seen flows into money market funds. All this tells us deposits are on the move. All right. So these choices are are clearly intended to shore up confidence from both investors and depositors, as you very clearly laid out. Let's dig a little bit more into the effects of making all those depositors whole. We've been getting a lot of questions about this response because, as you alluded to in your response there, 85 to 95% of the depositors, depending on the source of SVB's depositors, were above the $250,000 FDIC or Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation insured limit per account. So most of these deposits that were covered were not insured, but then they ended up being covered anyway. People are wondering if this creates moral hazard, aka gives banks a free ticket to make irresponsible choices because they could get you know, bailed out. I'm not sure if we would use that phrase, but that's the impression. What is your take on that of, you know, is it worth potentially a little bit of moral hazard to shore up confidence? Are all deposits in the U.S. banking system implicitly guaranteed now? What's your take? Those are really great and, and tough questions. I think there certainly is some moral hazard here. I think it's very unclear now if uninsured deposits are uninsured in all scenarios. There might be a belief now that if you have the deposits at a bank and it fails and, and a portion of those deposits aren't insured, that the FDIC would extend the guarantee to you and other depositors in a similar situation. So over time, that could lead to banks uh, taking on more risk. But I would anticipate what we could see over time is Congress coming to agreement to raising deposit on insurance rate. And what we should remember that banks pay for this this privilege. So it, it's not free. But it, current events do suggest that there needs to be some change to the deposit insurance scheme. 
I should also say that you know, it, clearly you can think about this as authorities judging that economic hazards in the short term outweigh any longer term uh, moral hazard issues. But it does mean that depositors of those two institutions benefited without having to have the, their banks pay for that in the form of a fee, which ultimately would have been passed back uh, to depositors. So there, there, there are some issues here that need to be addressed. I would, though, in the near term, address a different issue, which is that Secretary Yellen has made clear that in order for uninsured deposits to become insured, the FDIC needs to create a systemic risk exception. I like to say that they can pursue a resolution that is not necessarily the most cost-effective way forward. And it's not clear to me that all banks would qualify for a systemic risk exception if they did face significant outflows and they were placed into receivership. And if that's the case, we may have inadvertently set up a regime here where smaller bank depositors might feel that, gee, you know, my bank is too small to, to qualify for a systemic risk exception if there is a liquidity event and a receivership. So therefore, I shouldn't move my deposit now. So there could be some perverse incentives created in the short term, which I think may turn out to be as important as any longer term moral hazard issues. That's a great point. You know, how are we defining too big to fail? And how do we balance that with the need to shore up depositors' confidence across the entirety of the of the banking system? That's an amazing point. All right. So let's move from the SVB case specifically and to that more broad banking sector situation, which I think we kind of creeped into with that with that last discussion. We just discussed how the Fed's actions have impacted not just SVB, but potentially every bank. So do you believe that the failures of SVB and Signature were accidents caused by the Fed cycle, or is this the start of a systemic banking sector issue? So I don't see this as a systemic issue. I don't see this as a, a financial crisis. It seems like what we have here is a situation that's contained to a, a handful of banks with losses, realized or unrealized, securities portfolios, uh, given the rapid rate increases by the Fed. And another way it's different from a, a more systemic event is that, importantly, we, we know where this risk resides. It's very different from 2008, which I think, as everybody knows, that was more about credit risk. But an issue back then was that no one really knew whose counterparties were safe. No one knew where that credit risk and the losses resided. And that led to a huge pullback from counterparties. We're just not seeing that right now. I think there's a great understanding of where this problem resides, which banks are at risk. And by the way, the fact that a number of large banks band together last week and deposited $30 billion in First Republic tells you that those larger banks feel very, very confident in their capital and liquidity positions. And I think that tells you something that this is not a systemic event. I would also say that the fact that those banks did that tells you that the tighter regulatory standards that they've been held to since the financial crisis actually worked. I think that's a positive to be taken away from this. And I think that limits the risk of this becoming a more systemic event. That's a great point about the lessons that we've learned from the last crisis, the last cycle can potentially feed through into this. You also mentioned banks rescuing banks, right? Um, the consortium of banks that deposited that $30 billion into First Republic. And over the weekend, we saw that UBS purchased Credit Suisse. So if we look at this as you know a U.S. story, and then also if you throw in Credit Suisse as a European story, if you combine these two, you know, does this change the outlook for at least the U.S. economy for you? So before I get to that, let me add something to my last response, because I don't think I went quite far enough. There is one area in which this can become a broader issue. So I mentioned that this is about unrealized losses at a subset of banks. Actually, I should just say losses generally realized or unrealized on their securities holdings. But it's also transformed a bit into a focus on uninsured deposits. 
there's greater uncertainty about the safety of leaving uninsured deposits at banks. And that, I think, is leading to deposit flight from smaller institutions, and particularly institutions which are known to have uh, losses on their securities holdings. So that's one way in, in which this is a broader issue than one that just has to do with losses on securities portfolios, because there's a newfound appreciation of the risks of holding uninsured deposits. So as I mentioned, deposits are on the move. So we need to think about the implications of that. And that, I think, is where this may have some economic consequences. So if we think then about those, there, there are a few scenarios, and there's a few ways to think about this. One is that the policy measures that have been undertaken to date are enough to stabilize deposits. If you have uninsured deposits, you ultimately feel confident that what's been done so far means that your deposits are not. So there's some reshuffling of deposits, but you know, within a week or so, perhaps, everything is sort of resolved. People feel comfortable leaving their money where it is. Banks don't have to act defensively. They go back to lending. So that's sort of a back to where we were scenario where maybe there's some tightening in lending standards, maybe some constrained lending activity by banks. But ultimately, if you had expected that anyway as part of your baseline, because perhaps you expected a recession, well, then you would say, okay, it's an event that one would have expected anyway. Fed tightens rates, no change in one's outlook. So that's, that's one, one possibility. I think there's a second scenario, which is more likely, which is that the movement of deposits from smaller banks doesn't stabilize right away. The Fed facility uh, is helpful, but it doesn't have an immediate effect. Perhaps the, the, the data from the Fed use of their facilities last week you know, points to the fact that there is a significant movement of deposits. In this scenario, then, there is a more meaningful contraction in credit in the economy because those deposits, if they're flowing to larger banks, well, those banks might not have the local relationship to fill in for those smaller banks from a lending perspective. So in that scenario, there can be a more significant economic growth, and it could bring forward the start of a recession if that was in one's base case. It could make it a bit more protracted as well. Now, of course, in that scenario, we also have to think dynamically. The Fed would see that scenario developing. It probably means they would raise rates less, in part because they would think inflation would come down more significantly. Perhaps there's an offset as well because long-term rates might fall in that scenario. That would help the housing market. So it's a very, very dynamic situation. But if I weigh those two, it seems reasonable to me to build in some growth drag from these events and, and, and maybe increase one's probabilities of a recession beginning this year and maybe that it would be a little deeper than anticipated. And of course, there's a third scenario where there is just very, very significant deposit flight from small banks that goes on for quite some time. It becomes more of a crisis that would require action from Congress to maybe extend a blanket guarantee on all deposits for te on a temporary basis. And that's not my base case, but I do think that we should anticipate a larger drag on growth uh, from these recent events. Those are all amazing points. And I really appreciate your use of scenarios to help us think through how this might unfold, you know, depending on how well deposits hold up. And one, one aspect of all of this that affects every scenario, as we know, is inflation, because the Fed's focus right now seems to be very focused on preserving banking sector functioning, which right now is requiring liquidity support, more accommodative policy. But until last week, we were very much focused on containing inflation, tightening interest rates, draining liquidity, slowing the economy. So this presents a little bit of a tightrope for the Federal Reserve. And of course, right as the SVB situation was unfolding last week, we got the Fed February inflation numbers. So I'd love to hear what's your thought on that inflation report and how it makes the, the Fed's job a little bit harder. February in particular was, was a fascinating month. Of course, that extended into the February CPI report, which we got in March. And it was surprising to me as well, and I think to the Fed, to see the firmness and in recent inflation ratings. So we are left with a scenario where, as of right now, inflation readings have been firm. The labor market still remains very, very tight, and there still seems to be a tremendous amount 
of resiliency in the U.S. economy. And I think the Fed thinks that it has the tools to address what's happening on the banking front. They have liquidity policies such as the discount window, this new term funding program for banks. And then if that suffices to stabilize the banking sector, then they should be able to continue forward with interest rate increase. Now, we know that those two objectives are sort of financial stability and liquidity on one side and monetary policy on the other. They're not completely separate from each other. As the Fed continues to raise rates, that could put further pressure on bank securities holding. It's also going to put more pressure on them to raise deposit rates, and that could weigh on their net interest margins as well. So the tools aren't 100% separated, but I think the prior we have to have going into the Wednesday meeting is that if there aren't no more blowups, if you will, uh, in, in the banking sector, that the Fed would continue to raise rates at this meeting. But I would anticipate that they won't raise rates as much as I would have expected, say, two or three weeks ago. I thought maybe they would wind up getting the policy rate up into the 55 to 6% range. You know, maybe now it's just you know one and done or one more after that. We're trying to get policy into sufficiently restrictive territory. These events tell us that that end game is closer than we had previously thought. And then I would also add a detail. It's going to be really interesting to watch the summary of economic projections. So for your listeners, every quarter, the Fed releases a summary of its projections for growth, inflation, the unemployment rate, and also for the policy rate. And I think what's not always appreciated about the summary of economic projections is that it's a modal forecast. It's the base case. So even if you're level of confidence in the base case goes down, that's still the number that, that one would have to submit to the projections. It's not some risk-weighted you know, scenario average that goes into those projections. So even if they don't have a lot of confidence in their base case, maybe that confidence level has even fallen a little bit below 50%. That's still the modal forecast they have to put in. So they may be in an unco- uncomfortable position where they're acknowledging these banking sector risks, but also marking up their growth forecast for this year, given the strong GDP growth we've had so far this year, marking down their unemployment rate forecast as well, maybe even nudging up a little bit their core inflation objective as well. So the projections might seem hawkish. So I think Powell is going to have to balance that in his press briefing by acknowledging the downside risks presented by what's happening in the banking sector. That's an amazing summary of how these bank failures paired with the inflation report dramatically changed market expectations for what the Fed is going to do in its March 22nd meeting, so on Wednesday of this week. And you mentioned that, you know, in terms of how this might have changed your expectations, the Federal Reserve might not be able to hike quite as high as we were all initially expecting because of that need to provide a little bit more support to the banking sector. And that really speaks to that tightrope we mentioned earlier, that tightrope between tightening policy to contain inflation and ensuring the proper functioning of of the financial system. Now, the change in interest rate expectations has been really dramatic, but we should also remember that it's not the only tool that the Fed has. We've talked a lot about the liquidity part of this earlier in the podcast. Do you want to add any thoughts specifically on quantitative tightening or the Fed's reduction of its balance sheet, the draining of liquidity from the system? Do you expect the support that the Fed's been providing over the past week to have to continue and we'll see a reversal of balance sheet policy or that this might be a a temporary influx of support before we get back on that tightening track? The first thing I would say is that I would expect Fed to continue with quantitative tightening for the time being. I think there's an open question about whether they would stop it if we go into a recession and they wind up cutting rates. It might seem strange to be easing policy with one tool and continue with tightening uh, with, with the balance sheet. So it's possible that they could stop QT if they wind up cutting rates. So if I recall, I think Governor Waller, who I think has turned out to be a very good bellwether for policy, made a comment recently saying that QT could actually continue even if the economy goes into recession. So I think that's a little bit unclear to me, but my base case is certainly for the time being, they, they continue with QT. I think it would be premature to stop it just based on some of the risks that they're seeing so far. Now, interestingly, as you allude to, 
with the, the Fed now providing liquidity to the banking sector, reserves in the system are now going up. So QT drains reserves from the system. But now that reserve drain has been more than offset by the use of the discount window and the term bank funding program. So I've heard some people say that this amounts to quantitative easing again. The balance sheet is growing. I tend not to see it that way at all. I, I see QE and QT working through its influence on the supply of treasuries, mortgage securities in the market, and the influence that that has on interest rates, rather than, than on the liability side of the balance sheet. So I see what they're doing is really just providing liquidity to banks and not signaling any change in quantitative easing uh, slash quantitative tightening policies. Well, Steve, this has been a fascinating conversation and such a treat for me and also for our listeners who are you know, looking for a really credible voice on what's happening in the banking sector right now. This is an ongoing situation, so I know that this won't be our last podcast covering it, but thank you so much for helping us connect the dots between what's going on in the banks and then what does it mean for the actual economy and for, for policy moving forward. Thank you so much for joining me. Thank you for having me. And as usual, it's great to be with you. Thank you so much. For those looking for our full written rapid response on the SVB situation and banking as a whole, please see newyorklifeinvestments.com slash insights. That's it for today. We'll be back next week for more Market Matters. In the meantime, please remember to give us a like, follow, or review wherever you listen to podcasts. And if you have a question or topic of interest, other than the obvious banking ones this week, reach out to us on LinkedIn. You can also follow our views at newyorklifeinvestments.com under the Insights tab. Until then, I'm Julia Herman. Our podcast is produced by Milo Benamats, and our music was composed by the fabulous Zach Young. I will now read our disclosures from compliance. Past performance is no guarantee of future results, which will vary. All investments are subject to market risk and will fluctuate in value. This material represents an assessment of the market environment as at a specific date, is subject to change, and is not intended to be a forecast of future events or a guarantee of future results. This information should not be relied upon by the reader as research or investment advice regarding funds or any issuer or security in particular. The strategies discussed are strictly for illustrative and educational purposes and are not a recommendation, offer, or solicitation to buy or sell any securities or to adopt any investment strategy. There is no guarantee that strategies discussed will be effective. This material contains general information only and does not take into account an individual's financial circumstances. This information should not be relied upon as a primary basis for an investment decision. Rather, an assessment should be made as to whether the information is appropriate in individual circumstances and consideration should be given to talking to a financial advisor before making an investment decision. Mackay Shields is a sub-advisor for some mainstay funds and one of the New York Life Investments company. Not all products and services provided by Mackay Shields may be available to all investors, limited by applicable laws and regulations in certain jurisdictions. Any opinions expressed are the views and opinions of certain investment professionals at Mackay Shields, which are subject to change without notice. No part of this material may be reproduced in any form or referred to in any other publication without the express written permission of Mackay Shields. New York Life Investments is both a service mark and the common trade name of certain investment advisors affiliated with New York Life Insurance Company. Securities are distributed by Nylight Distributors, LLC, 30 Hudson Street, Jersey City, New Jersey, 07302, a wholly owned subsidiary of New York Life Insurance Company. Nylight Distributors, LLC is a member of FINRA SIPC.